If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. We need to embrace better questions when we try to help relationships thrive, rejecting shame and judgment, and instead focusing on love, respect, and boundaries that encompass the entire expression of what it means to be human and healthy. Brittany Meng. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today, we're talking with Brittany Meng. We're going to talk a bit about purity culture. So we're excited to kind of unpack this with her. So thank you, Brittany, for coming on and being willing to be open and vulnerable with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So just real quick, let's talk a little bit about just kind of what your day looks like for people who might not know you, what your family looks like, and then kind of separate from your everyday duties and activities, what makes your heart come alive? Well, a typical day for me, it is summer right now when we're recording. And so all five of my kids are home. I've got teenagers down to three-year-olds. So my day starts with my three-year-old coming in and demanding breakfast and a clean underwear and, you know, all of the things. So I think from the moment I wake up, I'm just like making food and breaking up fights and worrying about my kids having too much screen time and doing all the summer things and, you know, scheduling appointments and heading to the pharmacy. I feel like I live at Walgreens. So that's what I do in the, I live for nap time. My daughter naps every afternoon. She's a happy napper. And in the afternoons I work on sewing or my own podcast or writing. And then I make more food and, you know, crash with my husband in the evening. And we sit out in the backyard and tell our kids to go outside. And when they get out there, they're like, oh, it is fun outside and we can chase fireflies. And this is good. You know, life is good. So, and then we put everybody to bed and then I crash. That's my day right now. <laughs> Sounds all like my day just with less kids. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I feel you on that, on all of that. Yeah. Uh, so what is, my, what is my, kind of touched on my family. I am a military spouse. I am been married for 16 years. I have four boys and a girl. I have 14-year-old twins, seven-year-old boy, oh, nine-year-old boy, don't want to forget about him, and a three-year-old daughter. So that's my family. Outside of all of that, right, outside of like the hecticness of being a caregiver to all these kids and just kind of all the things that go into that, what really makes your heart come alive? If you just have space for just completely you, you said something about sewing, you have your own podcast, yeah. So I love good conversations like this. I get those on my podcast. I don't get them as much as I want in real life. I love good books, getting lost in fiction. And then lately I've been picking up watercolor again. That's something I did when I was a teenager and I just have pulled it out. And it's been really good because I feel a lot of my creative life I make for other people. It's meant to be consumed either through my writing or my sewing. I sell it on Etsy or things like that. And the watercolor is just for me. I'm not trying to show it to anybody. It's not meant to be consumed. And I think that's a place I need to grow in because I don't need to be perfect about it. It's just for relaxation and fun. And I think like that's been a place where I've felt at peace lately. I love that. That's so cool. And kind of being able to find something that you loved back towards the beginning is really, really cool. It reminds me of, what is it? Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Do you know that book where she talks about having some sort of creative outlet that isn't an income in any way? All it does is bring you joy and peace and grounding and whatever. And so I think that's really cool that you found that for yourself. Yeah, that's exactly what I want it to be. Yeah. You're really challenging even me, like, because I, and all three of us are creatives here. And so you do tend to create so others consume. So it's, it's really a good idea and thought, especially as moms, when everybody's consuming all the time, everything, our time, our resources, our food that we're making, 
to really come up with something that's really for us, that mm-hmm. little spark of joy. That's why we asked this question at the beginning, really what makes your heart come alive? Because hopefully that's one of the things about this podcast. We want other people to figure out what, what does that for them, that we don't want to lose ourselves. For me, I know my toxic religion taught me to lose myself, to die to myself, to sacrifice myself, to do all these things for others. It was like, Jesus, others, you, and you were like a dot. Didn't even count hardly at all. And so to get that, to kind of re-embrace that and take that back and say, no, actually I matter too. I'm important too. And when my heart comes alive, I can help other people's hearts come alive. So that's fabulous. Love that. All right. Diving. We're going to take a little deeper dive into the scary subject of purity culture. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So not too long ago, you wrote an article about this. And it's actually where we grabbed I, we grabbed our quote from, from you from the beginning. And I know so many people, including me, Liz, were so struck by your story as it tends to be the story of so many of us and what actually happened to you. So can you share the story that you shared online and you can maybe give us a little bit more details about it? Yeah. So my background is literature. I have two degrees in English and I'm always struck by the power of story to create new thoughts in my mind and just make me think differently about my life. So the way this actually came about where I wrote my story and shared it online was I had been reading this series of like romantic fiction and it was really just for fun. It wasn't anything like serious. It was like the fluffiest fiction ever, but I really appreciated the way the author set up these two relationships and the protagonist falls in love with two men and the reader is supposed to fall in love with them too. And so the first relationship seems so romantic and wonderful, but through the course of the book, you realize he's controlling and manipulative. She meets another guy and he ends up being somebody who helps her grow. And I was struck by the fact that she has sex with both of these men in the book but that wasn't the litmus test for having a healthy relationship. And I thought back to my own dating life and I thought back to the only question that people cared about when I was dating was, are you pure? Are you going too far? And I grew up very conservatively Christian. And this was asked by everyone, your best friends, your accountability partners, older siblings, parents. When I went to college, it was like your prayer group asked, your friends were asked, like I was in leadership. So everybody was like, are you pure? Are you pure? Like that was the only question that mattered. And when I thought about this fictional story I read and how I could clearly see the difference between healthy relationships where someone's encouraged to grow, they felt respected, their voice was uplifted versus the other relationship was controlling and putting the protagonist down and locking her up eventually became an abusive situation. And I thought, well, that's obviously unhealthy, but sex had nothing to do with it. And that really like just sparked something in my mind. So then I shared a story of how the standard of purity became just a way that went too far. I feel like in my own relationship with my husband and leadership My husband and I were both RAs at our university and we had an RA partner. So my partner, towards the end of the school year, we struggled in our relationship. She was dealing with some things that just caused a lot of friction in our relationship. And she made a decision based on what she was going through to turn me into our leadership and made up in a lie that we were having sex. We weren't best friends, but we had grown in our relationship throughout our time as RAs. And I had confided in her about my relationship with my fiance and about how we had taken a nap together over spring break. And that was really a beautiful, I felt like I hadn't allowed myself to actually relax with this man I was going to marry. And I felt like I was able to have this intimate moment with him where I trusted him in that instance to actually like fall asleep next to him. And I know that sounds weird, but like, if you grew up like I did, like that was a really big deal. (laughs) And so I had shared that with her and different things. And so she, like I said, she was going through some stuff and she wanted to hurt me. And she went and she told our leadership that we had spent the night together and that we had had sex and things like that. So 
we were brought in to our leadership and we were forced to answer to this accusation. And when we denied it, they said, well, what have you done? And so we had to confess to every intimate moment we had had as an engaged couple. We were virgins when we got married. Like we had not had sex, but like our relationship of two and a half years had a beautiful physical aspect to it. And to have to confess that to someone in an arena of judgment and shame was just beyond humiliating. And eventually we were fired from being RAs, which meant we lost a scholarship. We had to move out of our dorms to a different dorm in the last few weeks of school, right before finals. And we were fined, resulting in from the loss of scholarship and the fine, it was several thousand dollars. And we had to take out a loan actually to pay the fines. And this was six weeks before we got married. That was really hard. (laughs) And at the time, I just remember thinking like, this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to me because I was a young woman who valued purity and was taught that my sexual purity was the highest standard that I could hold as a young Christian woman. I had a purity ring. I was committed to all these different aspects of my culture and saying, this is who I'm supposed to be. Like, this is what brings me value. And to have to go through that situation where people calling that into, into consideration was horrifying. And it was a really difficult way to spend the last few weeks of my engagement and the early few months of my marriage, because that doesn't just go away overnight. That's something that sticks with you for a long time. Uh, okay. We're just horrified. I mean, <laughs> over your story, I, I, I just can picture you in that room, you know, with all those people that you're supposedly confessing your, your relationship with that you have to be accountable to these people. Did you find at the time that you were both dealt with sort of the same way, or did you think you were both dealt with the same way you and your husband to be? What have you learned about that even since, since that time? Yeah, that was really interesting because at the time I kind of thought my husband and I had the same experience. This was about 16 years ago. So when I wrote this article, we talked about it again, and I realized that The way that the men in his life, his leadership dealt with him and the way that the women in my life dealt with me was a very different experience. His RD still pursued a relationship with him and invited him to go running and was kind of like, you know, man, like this is a bad bump in the road, but like you're going to get through it. And I felt like I was completely cut off from the women that were over me, the, my female RD, the female deans. I just felt like I had a scarlet letter on my chest and they just cut me off from a relationship and wanted to put me in my place or even wanted me to break up with my fiance. I remember one female Dean said, sometimes we need to take a break from our men to get right with God. And she too was engaged. Like she was getting married that summer and we got married before she did. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I am on this trajectory to get married where the sexual relationship is supposed to be fully embraced in this, like, and maybe even over the top way. If you save yourself for marriage, you're supposed to have this great sex life. But now I'm supposed to take a break from my man so I can get right with God. In my mind, at that time, I just listened to her and I was like, okay. And I felt confused and guilty and angry. But now, years later, I'm like, that's just dumb. There was just no good advice given. And honestly, the situation just shouldn't have happened. It was Mm -hmm. just the letter of the law being carried out in a way that hurt us and made our purity the highest standard in what people deemed a good relationship. They made that the highest quotient, not asking us any other positive questions or curious questions Mm -hmm. or helping us grow as a young Christian couple. Yeah. There's so much about your story that actually makes me like physically feel sick. Like I was feeling like nauseous as you were talking. The thing that is really sticking out to me about what you're saying is this idea of as long as you're pure, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Even if all these other things are happening, even at my small Christian school that I went to, there were marriages that happened because people were trying to stay pure. So they just got married so they could have sex. 
and the relationship wasn't a great relationship and ended up falling apart. So I think you make this really just wonderful and kind of straightforward point. Purity is not the ultimate of the relationship. There's all these other things that are important and all this weight is being put on this one thing and these other things are kind of falling to the wayside. I think a lot of things in general are often overlooked, this one specific thing. You really bring up a good point about that there's some almost unreachable and unattainable perfection standard. And it's all this one thing. All the eggs are in this one box. Like, are they having sex or not? And that's the box that matters the most. And it's the box that has to be perfect. I remember even just in high school, which cracks me up now, almost every youth group experience I had was how far can we go? They talked about sex so much And here we all are sitting there with all our hormones and they're talking about it. So everybody's thinking about it all the time. And all the talk is surrounding sex. But the end of the subject is you can't have it. And this is actually the measure of your relationship. And anybody who's having sex, well, then that must be the worst relationship ever. And so that all or nothing thinking, that perfectionism or failure, it's like you have to be a virgin. And if you ever touched under your shirt, then you're not really, it's just all these weird things that I would say that all or nothing thinking that perfectionistic, I've, I've changed my mind a little bit about purity culture. And I think purity culture to me encompasses all of this perfectionism or failure. You're either a virgin or you're a slut. You're either like having devotions, you know, and you're perfect Christian man, or you're the most wicked man in the world because you're not having devotions, not because you're not kind to your wife, but because you didn't have your devotions. So there's so much that permeates this all or nothing thinking and all these little rules that we put in place that make somebody a good Christian or a good wife or a good boyfriend or whatever. And I love that you're bringing out the harmful side of this. What does this actually do? And that's why Liz and I both, I don't even think we could hardly speak because we were like, this is disgusting. Like I can see how much harm you had. And I'm curious, once you wrote that article and you told your story, what kind of responses did you get? Oh man, I got all kinds of different responses. So a lot of people said they had the same kind of reaction that you had. They were shocked, horrified. They felt physically ill. That was a common one that came up, especially if they weren't in that culture. So the people were also angry, but not shocked. Those are people who went to school with us. They said, I'm not surprised. Or I've heard stories like this before. Mm. And then other people shared their own experiences with shame or how purity culture resulted in damaging body image issues or toxic relationships and abuse, how they followed all these rules and they did all the right things and they made that the litmus test. And then they ended up being married to an abusive man who rang up thousands of dollars in credit card debt and had affairs, but they did all the things right. They followed all the purity culture rules. The reward was supposed to be the healthy, happy, godly marriage. I did a, and it was supposed to result in B and that math just doesn't the formula, always the formula, right? Yeah. yeah. I think the vast majority of people were shocked and agreed that the situation played out and it was wrong. Many people said, thank you for sharing. I did have one person who went to the same school as I did, who said, well, you knew the rules and you broke them. What did you expect? Hmm. And this is a quote. She said, I was sad to see words like horrifying, disgusting, and evil being used in the comments to speak to people and standards that were set as a rule to protect those who may have stumbled in the same situation you allowed yourselves to be in. Hmm. Wow. All righty then. <laughs> it's so, I mean, we talked about this before we were on air briefly, but it's so interesting to me the harm that comes from not the action itself, right? But the reaction, the shame that's sort of heaped on you for what you did or did not do. And it's horrible. It is. It's horrifying to me. It's horrifying to me. I'm not shocked because I kind of came from a similar culture, so it doesn't shock me, but it does horrify and sicken me. I think the way that shame has played out in my life, because I knew that what my husband and I always said was we are glad for the way our integrity was intact through that whole situation, because we told the truth. And 
we accepted the consequences that were laid out before us because yes, we broke the rules of our university, like that commenter said. However, I think those rules ultimately were founded on a poor principle. Mm -hmm. And so to carry out the consequence for those rules to the letter of the law didn't help us grow in our relationship. It didn't show us love. There was no grace involved. It was just, you broke the rules. You deserve this. And I believe that I deserve the way they treated me until I wrote that article. Mm. I told my story. And as I was interacting with people who commented, it came out that I continued to work. I graduated, I went to grad school and I worked for that university for many years. And someone said, I can't believe you worked for them. And I said, I was so immersed in that culture. I felt like I deserved the way they treated me until now, until I'm like, no, that was wrong. And I didn't deserve to be treated that way. And the way of grace and respect and conversation and relationship is the way of Jesus. And that's not what was expressed through that situation. And so I think that was a big shift for me in actually sharing the story and then coming to new realizations about how shame from purity culture still affected me to this day. Yeah. And regardless, I think of personal stances on purity culture, we're all in different places with how we think about certain things, but regardless of that, this kind of idea that your personal life is somebody else's business you're not hurting anybody with your actions this is your own personal life and they're asking you to divulge these really like intimate details about your life and that is considered okay and normal under the guise of accountability and trying to keep you in step with the spirit it's kind of under this guise of, but we just want to make sure that you don't fall out of line and so we're really here to help you but like you said, you ended up, you had fines. I mean, your your lives were really unraveled by this incident that doesn't seem all that, I'm like thinking about some of the stuff that I did in college. I'm like, yikes, they would have thrown me in some sort of university prison. <laughs> Eternal conscious torment, Liz. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. It's probably what's on the docket, but it is. It just, it comes from this place of like control and these patterns of just yes. control. It, it all feels like the same, all or nothing all or nothing, all or nothing. There's no middle ground. You either do this or you do this. Well, and even I was thinking you either do this or you're out Mm. and you don't belong here. It's like, you have to be perfect or you're out. Mm -hmm. There's no room for learning from your mistakes. Even if it was a mistake, which I don't even, the premise is just awful. Like I agree with you a hundred percent, Brittany, that the premise way in the back to run a university in this such a way where we're in control and trying to control everybody's adults, every little action that they're doing and people are telling on each other. I mean, this, that sounds like, yeah, I don't know what, yeah. what country are we living in or what time period. Time so period, the yeah. premise aside, even if you were to do something that was bad for you, where is the come alongside and we, you're still part of us mm-hmm. and we're going to work through this with you and the love and the tenderness and the mercy and the grace and the sense of belonging, like you're still one of us. We're going to sit with you in this and because your relationship actually with your future spouse and your relationship with yourself is what really matters. Mm-hmm. This podcast is about parenting. And I think like, that's the healthy way to be a parent Yeah, is your kids aren't perfect or failures. You don't like say, oh, you weren't perfect. All right. Cutting you off, cutting you out. And that's the hold that I think so much of toxic religion does Mm. is we have a hold over you. If you buck up and you do this X, Y, and Z, according to the rules we've assigned, then you're welcome to stay in the fold. And I can just hear it. You're representing the university. You're representing the church. You're representing God himself. That's not the way of Jesus. Like you said, Jesus went And just sat alongside people in their muck and mire and whatever, and was with them and suffered along with them. And he never told them that they didn't belong to it. We'll be right back with the rest of today's podcast episode. But first, we want to give a big shout out to those of you who support us through our Patreon community. We're helping us keep the lights on so that we can continue bringing all this goodness to you. For just $3 a month, you can invest in our work 
and become part of our private Facebook community, which provides a completely safe place to dive deeper into all the questions and nuances that come with parenting and deconstructing. You can find that information right on our website at deconstructingmamas.com. So thank you so much for your support. Joy Fell, Jennifer Keith, and Pete Enns. Now, back to our podcast. I'm really intrigued too by this idea of your treatment versus your husband's treatment. I found that to be concerning, but also like very intriguing to me that, oh, he just kind of stumbled. But for you, this is the end of the world. You have passed the point of no return. And I remember the woman who had sex before marriage was the chewed up wad of gum. The guy, it was just sort of like, now, now, learn to control your penis. But like for the woman, it was like, you are chewed up gum. You are a trampled flower. You're like the things that go in the trash can. Like that's what you are. There was this heaping amounts of shame. And even when I talked to my husband who grew up in a similar background to me, he just does not have the same amount of shame concerning his purity. In fact, he just like didn't really think about it all that much. And like Esther said, I thought about it all the time. (laughs) like literally all the time and heap shame on myself and other people heap shame on me. Woo. It is. I think the onus of purity culture lands on the shoulders of women. That's a carryover from just patriarchal ideals that come from our culture and not necessarily from the church, but this idea that men are supposed to control their daughters. They're supposed to be marriageable and pure and virginal. And I think that these ideals aren't necessarily Christian. They just are cultural. And the whole idea of like the Madonna and the whore, well, you certainly want your daughter to be a Madonna. You want your wife to be the Madonna in the house. Those come from Victorian ideals that we've adopted into our modern day culture of what it means to be a good woman or a good Christian woman. And this idea that you can control people's faith by making them make promises or wear rings or saying like, this is the way to live out your faith is to not have sex. That's the main thing. You think that, oh, look at the results. Look at all these people who have made these promises and worn these rings and made these commitments not to have sex or they're married. Aren't they good Christians? And we've completely missed the mark into what makes a relationship with Christ, what makes a healthy dating relationship or marriage. It's all comes down to this black and white issue of like, are you pure? Right. This is such a hard topic too, for so many people. And especially in kind of the population that where Esther and I hang people who are sort of deconstructing and they're kind of just trying to figure out who they are now outside of some of those toxic faith traditions. And I know that this is a topic of a lot of shame. People hate themselves for things that they've done or someone told them that they did in their past that didn't quite align with what they should have been doing. And like you said, people are now in really, really tough marriage situations because of things that were overlooked because purity was held at this really high standard and the other stuff was kind of like, and so, yeah, so, I, I mean, this is a really hard topic. And I, so I think it's, it's important to really put that out there to people who are listening. I, cause I'm even just thinking as, as we're talking, like, woo, this is like heavy. I even feel like my thoughts are kind of getting kerfunkled because this is heavy. It's hard stuff, but I'm curious to, to talk a little bit about how some of your views have changed in terms of purity culture. I mean, you have a daughter now, right? So she's your she's your youngest, right? So you have boys and then you have a girl. And did having a daughter change some of those things too? You're looking at the ways that her life might look and things that you want her to know about herself and her worth and her choices and what's important in relationships and those types of things. I'm curious about that because I know I think about that a lot. Yeah. Well, I'll start with my boys because I've been a boy mom for many, many years, and I've only been a girl mom for three years. So I think that learning more about, I remember just hearing growing up that you have to dress modestly because men can't control their thoughts. They're going to look at you and you're going to cause them to stumble. You're going to be responsible for their sexual thoughts. They're just going to undress you in your mind. Like you have to be aware of yourself all the time. And I, I remember asking my husband about that when we were dating, I'm like, do you look at every girl and like put her in your spank bank? Actually, he probably taught me that word. I didn't even know it. And he's like, no. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I can look at a girl and appreciate that she's pretty or hot and not want to have sex with her. 
my mind was just like blown. I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm not an animal. I'm not just like a walking penis. And I'm like, you're right. And that's the way I've really approached raising my boys. And so I have teenagers now and we do talk about sex. And of course it's embarrassing and they hate it. But there's a difference between sex being embarrassing and sex being shameful. Mm. And I really want to embrace, hey, this can be an awkward conversation, but this has nothing to do with shame or you being a bad person. It's just like, this is the stuff of life. Sex is all around us. We have five kids. We have a healthy, loving relationship and sex is a part of that. And we talk about things like Roe v. Wade. And we talk about things like respecting girls at school. We talk about dating relationships and neither one of my boys are ready for that. But like we talk about relationships we see on TV, sex is a part of our conversation and it's awkward and they don't really like it, but like, I really don't want to lean into shame. So I'm trying to keep that dichotomy aware of like, Hey, awkwardness is okay, but I don't want to lean into shame. So that's something that I've done with my boys. I also I had no teaching growing up about bodies, words to describe private mm-hmm. parts. That's something I've done with my kids from a very early age. And I think that also dissolves shame because when you give words to normal things, like this is your vulva, like this is a vagina, this is your penis. Like these are words that normalize normal functions and are not embarrassing and feel mm-hmm. shameful. So that's something that I brought up from an early age. I also really shut down any teasing about crushes. And I think that's important because there was so much teasing around who likes who growing up that I was, I felt like a bad person for having a crush. And I just wanted people like Mm -hmm. to not talk about it because I felt I was teased relentlessly by like siblings and even my parents. So I never wanted to talk to my parents about any guy I liked. It was like, I don't want to be teased. So I'm not going to talk about it. And so for me saying any type of teasing about a crush, I like shut it down because I want that to be an open conversation mm-hmm. with my kids when they come to me and say like, like there's this girl in my class and she's, she's like really special. And I want it to be like, not, Ooh. I want it to be like, Hey, tell me more. What mm-hmm. makes her a cool person? Is she a good friend to you? Mm-hmm. That teasing, I just, I'm like, we do not tease about crushes. Like I get really (laughs) mad about it. I love the way that you, that you even just said that right there with like, like what makes her a cool person? Even putting the emphasis on women as people and vice versa, right? Men as people, there's like these other things that you can do with them that are like fun, these like sexual things. But then there's also all these other things that are important in a relationship, which you keep kind of coming back to the same idea. But I love that. I love that idea of like, what is cool about this person outside of anything else? And what do you like about them? And being able to have that sort of open conversation. Is there something specific? Is there a specific conversations that you're having in terms of like, what does a healthy relationship look like? And what do healthy boundaries look like? Both in a physical, sexual, romantic relationship, but then also just in in relationships with friends or relationships with parents or because I know even with my kids, and I'm curious to hear if this is something that that you did when your kids were younger, which I'm thinking probably you did, was just this idea of like, hey, you don't have to hug that person if you don't want to. You don't have to give kisses to grandma if you're not feeling up for it. And really letting other people around you know too, like, no, they don't have to do that if they don't want to, like kind of giving them sort of this ownership of their bodies a little bit. So early on, they're kind of learning like, no, you do have choices when it comes to these certain things. I know it was like a long-winded question, but how all that's kind of played out. Yeah, I really put a huge emphasis on no means no. And there's a lot of physicality that goes on in my house. Like the babies are like wrestling constantly and like putting their hands on each other. And if someone says stop, I'm like, stop means stop. You have to stop. (laughs) Like you cannot keep going if someone says stop. And so in my mind, I'm like, yes, this applies right now with my seven-year-old and my 14-year-old beating each other up. But I want to drill into their heads, especially since I have four sons that no means no and stop means stop. And like, you better back the hell up if someone says stop, because I feel like that is such an important concept in our culture, especially right now. And having four sons, like I think about those things. I think about consent. I think about permission. And I want that to be a foundational aspect that they bring into the relationships. And that's not the only thing. You're not a great boyfriend if if you're consensual. 
those things don't make you a great husband just because you're like, is this okay? <laughs> but I'll share another story with my daughter that I have. And so having a little girl, so caring for a little girl in diaper time and caring for a little boy are very different. There's a lot more that goes on and I don't know, there's so many little folds and everything. And I've had to learn how to clean her out. And, and I have really emphasized when she needs, just she asks for cream if she has a little rash. And I always say, is it okay for me to touch? And I always wait for her to say yes. And then I say, are you ready? And then she says, yes. And so I have emphasized that from a very young age that her body belongs to her and she has to tell me yes for me to touch, to put some cream on a sore spot in her diaper area. And so that is something that I am also intentional about with her. And I think I'm going to learn more and more about what it means to raise a daughter as she gets older. And I don't have all the answers for that. Like, I think I'm like, what am I going to do about modesty? Or like, what am I going to do when she wants to wear this? And I'm like, I don't need to worry about that. I'm just going to have to cross that bridge when I get there and work through my own triggers because Mm -hmm. I know there's going to be more stuff coming up from my past as she moves into those ages and stages that I haven't had to deal with, with my sons. You asked about different ways to do relationships. And there are some questions that I included in the article that I wrote that are not, are you pure, but what are better questions that we can ask? in our relationships, when we say, is this a healthy relationship? And I wrote, do you feel respected? Does he treat you as an equal in all facets of life? Do you treat each other with kindness? Are you able to speak your mind without fear as a full partner in the relationship? Do you feel safe? Can you come and go at will? Do you feel treasured? Are your dreams and goals valued as much as his? Do you solve problems and resolve stress together? When you do set boundaries, are they respected? And does he help you become the best version of yourself? And obviously I wrote these from a female perspective because as a woman, I wrote them from my perspective. So I think that those are better questions to ask as far as what does the health of a relationship look like? And how can we walk in that path as opposed to just making sex the primary focus of having a good relationship, having a healthy relationship? I remember when my husband took my girls out and I think it was one of the conversations, like, what can you look for in a partner in the future? And I think about this process of deconstructing and how sticky it can be and how not linear it is. It's like, okay, we didn't do this. We did this at the same time. Now we're talking seven, six, seven, eight years ago with my youngest, I bought her a white rose. At the same time, she was talking to my husband. And so my husband was talking to her all about her value and what do you look for in a partner and all those questions that you're asking. And I remember being so happy, but we were still so entrenched in this idea. Well, and I kind of felt like, well, she's such a valuable person that I didn't want her to even give her body to anybody that wasn't going to value her body. And so it was, it's a little sticky. It's like, oh, does this mean that we just go out and throw our bodies everywhere and any boy that comes along, high school boy that comes along is like, Hey, do this, do this, do this. No. Yet. Now I look back at that white rose and symbolically, I wanted it to be, cause I had been growing and learning and changing that she has this beautiful value. And I wrote all these like long letter with it, that she is somebody that I think is so incredibly a treasure. Like you said, do they treasure you? But now I look and I think that white, the white, the white rose symbolizing virginity, kind of perfection and everything was like, what was going on in her mind at the time when she received this and sort of the mixed message that she got from us who were in the process of beginning to see things differently, but we weren't quite there yet. And we were afraid too. I didn't want her to just go, go out, like have boys treat her horribly or use her. And so Again, like I was thinking, oh, I did it wrong. And I'm like, again, I have to say it's not perfection or failure because in my heart, I know the basis was you're really valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. So probably she doesn't have the same trauma as older one did when I gave her the white rose. And I was like, okay, this is about keeping yourself a virgin until you're married. Yeah. And so that process to go along, and I loved what you said, you have a daughter who's three, you're going to cross that bridge when you come to it. But always this idea of we're still learning, we're still learning and we're growing and we're trying to figure it out as we go along and we have to give ourselves grace for all of that. And it's going to be messy. Like looking back on you in that room, 
I don't know what myself would have said 30 years ago. Well, she knows she did sign the covenant. And so she knew better. And that would have been that black and white thinking. And maybe 20 years ago, I would have been like, that is so creepy. And maybe 10 years ago, I'm like, that makes me so angry. And now I'm like, you know what? (laughs) I'm telling this story nationwide on a podcast. (laughs) Love Esther that you're talking about this idea of kind of like you wanted your daughter to value herself and this idea of sort of like valuing yourself and how that's what's really important. Like really knowing how to value yourself and love yourself. And I think back to my past and I I do want to be really clear about this. You know, we're all going to have different ideas of what is fine and not fine and what we want our children's sex lives look like or ours, whatever, you know, but what I can say, having had whatever we're calling it, a past, promiscuous, whatever we're calling it, whatever the kids are calling it these days, there was sort of this overarching idea that if I had sex before marriage, I automatically didn't value myself. And I can kind of look back at certain relationships and say, oh, I wasn't really valuing myself in that relationship, but it wasn't necessarily because I was having sex out of marriage. There was like other things that I was doing that weren't valuing myself. And then there were relationships where I was valuing myself and actually was a pretty okay relationship. It probably good I wasn't married to them, but they were doing their best to value me. And I think again, kind of what you're talking about, Brittany, is like sex is just not, it's just not the measurement for everything, whether you do it or not, right? It's not the measurement for everything. And so kind of switching this narrative to what is important outside of sex and how do we promote that to the highest standard as opposed to these like specific actions that hormones are affected by all sorts of things right but instead like how can we create an environment where this community and humanity and love and respect and like all of that matters more and the fact that you were going through this scenario at your school and people greatly were shocked and disagreed and were horrified by whatever you did or didn't do but then just kind of like left you like i'm not understanding i get it because it was in that culture too but it doesn't really make sense and that's concerning when we're talking about love and forgiveness and community and all of that that there's not room for that though if you do this thing Like maybe there's room for it if you do like some other stuff, but there's not room for it if you do like this thing. Like there's things that you can't really rise above. And I think there's also maybe a difference too between like male and female, like what a male can do versus what a female can do. And that's maybe a whole nother topic. If we're not purporting health in all community, we're not going to promote it in our individual relationships or our marriage either. If the standard of church is perfection or failure, then the standard of a dating relationship is perfection or failure. When I look at you and I think, oh my goodness, what would you say now to your former self sitting? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. I think I would look back and say all those questions, all of these healthy relationship questions, like you and Aaron have those together. You have a beautiful, healthy relationship and the way that your physical intimacy has grown is only going to serve as a good foundation for intimacy within your marriage. And so stop thinking you're damaged and unusable either in work or with God, because you love each other and you have physical intimacy together. And the way that people are treating you is not the way I value you or the way that you need to be valued. There are ways of being valued that have nothing to do with your sexual purity because that is a way of fear and shame. And there's no growth that happens when you're fearful and you're living in shame. There's so much growth that can happen still. And your value as a person or a child of God or as a wife or anything has nothing to do with your sexual purity. Yeah, that's so cool. You know what I would say to you? Wow, how cute that you felt safe enough to take a nap together. I mean, seriously, like, wow, he makes you feel really, like, what about that? Like, wow, he he must make you feel really safe. Yeah. That's so, I don't know. uh, I'd be like, get out of there. Get out of that school right now. Get in your car. Drive away. Drive as fast as you can. Oh my gosh. Why are you still there? I, I do understand the prison walls that we put around ourselves and other people in these toxic religious 
institutions, we do. We imprison ourselves and we really stifle the opportunity to know people and grow with people and love people. And the same token to know God and love God and grow with God. At the end of the day, and I don't know if you would say this for you too, but so much of my past like has literally no bearing on who I am today. Like so much of it. And I think the older I get, the more I'm like, wow, that actually didn't matter. Like it just didn't, it did not affect me. What affected me maybe was some of the messages that I got from other people about certain things that I went through, but like the actual thing didn't yeah. affect me. You kind of grow and you learn, you learn these things, but ugh, community is really just the most beautiful thing. And if we don't have that, what do we have? Isn't that like what God wants for us? I mean, community, yeah. community with each other, community with, community with God, community with self this breaks that it shatters it it that's just sad for me it feels like jesus is missing in those moments that that's just kind of like how it feels to me and i think about what you just said liz too is when we create when we're imprisoned then we imprison others and that's not community that's not the freedom that we all long for i think within community oh oh my gosh Brittany! i'm gonna ask you one last question picture yourself sitting at your dinner table with your kids all of them. And if you could guarantee that they would listen to what you had to say and actually take it with them on their life's journey, what would be your message to them about God, faith, and themselves? And perhaps as related to this whole purity culture thing. Yeah. I think that the only thing I can share with them is my own story. And that happens, you know, when they're ready because my older kids know aspects of the story. They know that we were in a situation where we could have lied and we told the truth and we got in big trouble when we told the truth, but we had to accept the consequences. So we've told them that part, but they haven't, they don't know why. And I think that as they get older, we'll share more things with them. But I think that I would want their faith to reflect the question, not, am I following all the rules so I can be accepted? but am I loving well in this moment? And that includes loving themselves. If they have a partner that they love, am I loving her or him well in this moment, loving their neighbor as themselves. And that's really what I would want them to focus on and just rejecting any of this mentality of, I have to follow all the rules or I'm going to be out. There is a huge consequence for not following the rules but I think we do ourselves such a disservice when we lean into that, as opposed to leaning into love. Mm. Ah, thank you. That's so good. Yeah. I'm like, so thankful for you. I feel really like emotional right now. And I feel like this whole conversation, I mean, when we first had you on the schedule, you know, I'm like, Oh, pretty culture. Great. Like this is so important to talk about. And it's like, you know, every time we kind of go back to this discussion, like the wounds come back for me. And I don't know if that's true for you, but I think it's just important to speak that out loud. This is hard stuff. And we don't talk about it lightly. You know, we're not like, great, throw your kid in a corset and send him to high school. Like, <laughs> this is not like a black and white, one side of the spectrum, the other. This is just like, hey, we're just trying to figure this out. And we just want to find healing. We want our, our families to find healing. And we're just talking about this. So I just I just really appreciate your vulnerability and your just willingness to come on and just talk about some of the things that, that you've learned and that you've experienced. And as I know, a really um, important topic to so many. So it just means a lot. Thank you so much. I think I've learned, and I'm a storyteller, like, you know, I've realized that there are some stories inside of me that I know I'm not ready to tell. Mm. And I have to ask myself a lot of times why. And shame, I think, is a big problem. And shame of what people will think, shame of revealing dark or embarrassing or shameful parts of myself. And this was a story that I thought, oh, I really want to write that someday. But like, how can I tell it without damning myself? Mm without people judging me. And I think that realizing slowly and you learn like through those fictional books, I was like, are there better questions to ask? That fictional series brought forth the, there are better questions to ask than are you staying here? And if you're not, you're out. And so when I was able to ask a different question, I was able to tell my story. Mm. And I know that when people read it, they were able to think about their own story in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there can be such a release of shame when we're able to say, 
this is my story. And like, I know for me that has really shame in my own life. And so I can walk in different paths and continue to ask different questions for myself and for my kids, because I know that as I work through my own stuff, I'm working through it for them too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the whole thing. Everybody's like deconstruction is people losing their faith. It's like, no, deconstruction is just asking questions, a different question about what you've thought all your life was absolute truth. And we're just saying, maybe there are better questions out there that we need to be asking ourselves. So I love that. And so many people we talk to, right, Esther, like our parents or caregivers who are like, oh, we don't want to do that with our kids. And that kind of starts this conversation and sort of starts this story of what do we do that's different? So your article came from, I know your Facebook page, but I know people, you have a podcast. So can you just tell people where they can find you? We're going to put a link to this article that we talked about in our show notes for people to find you on Facebook, but tell us where people can find you. So I write on Facebook at Brittany Ming, the BAM blog, M-E-N-G, and then the BAM blog. And then my podcast is called The Motherhood Metamorphosis. And I have a Facebook page for that. And you can find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you like to listen to podcasts. And I think I'm coming on as a guest. Yes, you are. Yes. (laughs) I'm excited about that. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. It's a great podcast for moms. It's so good, but it's a lot more about us being transformed as moms than necessarily our kids, which is so cool from Caterpillar to Butterfly. Love that. So thank you so much. Oh, we loved having you. This was hard and beautiful and messy and really, really good. Thank you guys for having me on to talk about this. I hope that it really just causes people good food for thought and just releasing shame. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely will. So thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode on the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, estherjoygets.com and elizabethpetters.com, as well as our brand new website, deconstructingmamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.